0: Hey guys, it's Abro. Got a great show for you this week. We do have a show announcement, a little bit of a sad one, but we also have a fantastic guest to come and break down a crucial part of the 2021 offseason and what I think is going to be a crucial part of off seasons going forward. We've got takeaways on the off-season program: Jawan James, Aaron Rodgers, Jalen Ramsey, Brian Hoyer, and we get to all of your questions in the six-pack. Let's go. All right, welcome in. It's the middle of May. We still have a good show coming for you this week, though. Got an awesome guest. He's going to help us navigate the changing quarterback landscape. 20, 30 years ago, the ideal used to be a quarterback spends his entire career with one team. That is not quite the same anymore. And our former exec is going to come in and explain to us what exactly he would do if he were in the shoes of the Packers or the Seahawks or the Texans right now also we're going to get to your questions in a six-pack and we do have the takeaways to start the show but I want to start with a little bit of a show announcement of course this is the Albert Breer show it has been the Albert Breer show for the last nine months I don't know what the future is for the show. And I'm gonna be honest with you guys, this wasn't my call, um, just some things changing and that happens, that's common in, in media. Um, some changing things happening with the vision for our podcast and where things are going. And so some things are up in the air right now. What I can promise you guys, and I don't know whether or not we're gonna do one more show or three more shows, but you know what you've seen on this feed was gonna be coming to an end relatively soon. What I can promise you is the content we've tried to bring you here over the last five years, whether it was on this feed, you know, all the way back with Emily Kaplan and the people that we had on the show all those time, all those years ago with Andy Gresh, you know, the great shows that we did with Lou Pellegrino. Um, over the years and then of course most recently the shows that we've done um, over the last nine months on this feed which was the initial feed we're going to find a home for that content somewhere I just got to figure out where we're going to put it what it's going to look like promise you guys we're going to get you guys that comp that content I also want to really thank all the coaches and executives out there who have listened to the show? Who've given me feedback on the show? Um, you know, particularly the guys, you know, like Sean McVay and Eric DaCosta and and Brett Veach who did the the series with us last summer, um, the sort of career development series, which I thought was great. And We're going to find a way to do some more of those over the next few weeks too. Um, you know, again, like I want to thank everybody who came out and listened to this. And so, um, feel free to keep sending your suggestions, and we usually give my social media. Um, channels at the end of the show. we're gonna give them to the top of the show here, just to kind of give you guys a place to send any suggestions or any sort of ideas on where you think we should take this next. I'm open to ideas now. Um, my Twitter page is at Albert Breer. My Facebook page is at Albert R Breer. My Instagram is albert underscore Breer. Like I said, the Albert Breer show, what we've done here over the last nine months, what we've really done here over the last five years is gonna live somewhere we just got to find the right home for it. And with that, we'll jump into the takeaways and where else can we start in May of 2021 then with the Aaron Rodgers situation. And I think you guys know where I stand on this, at least the people who've listened to the show the last few weeks. I think so much of this is about relationships. So what we're going to do is we're going to try to give you guys a relationship counseling session here where I think that there is a a reasonable a reasonable way for Matt LaFleur and Brian Gutekunst to put the relationship in a better spot than it's been and find a way to get Aaron Rodgers back in there. And here's why I think it's so important to get Aaron Rodgers back in there. There's the obvious, of course. He's a, the reigning MVP, a Hall of Fame quarterback, um, and one of the all-time greats at the position. It's also the makeup of your roster, though. And I was looking at this this morning, and I think it's just it's so stark when you look at the age of so many of the key guys in the roster. David Bakhtiari, their left tackle, 29 years old. Zadarius Smith, Preston Smith, the two pass rushers they paid for a couple off-seasons ago, 28-28. Adrian Amos, the safety that they bought in free agency, 28 years old. Devontae Adams, their star receiver, their number one receiver, 28 years old. They've got some younger players too, guys like Jair Alexander and Aaron Jones. The fact of the matter is, the roster is built to win right now. Jordan Love's not ready, and you've got the quarterback on your roster – As it stands, that is again like an all-time great at the position. So, what do you do to get him back in? Well, I think what makes this difficult is that so much of it relates to how the Packers have conducted their off seasons the last few years in relation to how we've seen Tampa do it with Tom Brady. I think what Rod Aaron wants is his team to build around him with the same sort of aggression that the Bucks have built around Brady. So. With the offseason gone, with the draft gone, with with free agency gone, how do you do that? Well, I think you could make a run at Julio Jones. And that's something to consider, except that the Packers still are very tight up against the cap. So you're only about $2 million under the cap right now. So what do you do to bring in Julio? Well, you sit down there and you say, we're going to mortgage your contract. We're going to mortgage a couple other contracts too. And we're going to make a play to try to get Julio Jones in here. Maybe it works, maybe it doesn't, but that's our first olive branch to you. Then I think you make the promise to him. You say, we're going to extend you. And you know you keep working on the contract extension in a way that's going to make you feel good that you're going to be the quarterback here for the next three years minimum. And we're going to promise you that when we get to the 2022 offseason, we are going to act more aggressively. We are going to build a lot more like Tampa has built around Brady. We are going to break from what we've done over the last 30 years. Now, is that difficult to do? Yes, it's difficult to do. You know, the way that they've done business in Green Bay goes all the way back to Ron Wolf, all the way back to 1991. In a certain way, it was what drove Brett Favre out of Green Bay because he had the same sort of mindset at the end of his career that Aaron has now. He wanted them to build with aggression. This is a special opportunity having a quarterback like this still playing at this level and playing in the offense that Matt LaFleur, which, again, is a cutting-edge offense, like having all of that together, having a star receiver, having a top-shelf left tackle, having a star running back, like they're very much in a championship window now. So if I'm the Packers you know what we'll get back to doing business the way we've done business for the last 30 years when Aaron Rodgers is gone for right now let's go chase championships and I think if you can send that message to Rodgers again through maybe making a run at Julio and through making a promise to him that you will be more aggressive in 2022 I think there's a way to get it done takeaway number two and this relates back to Aaron Rodgers I'm starting to change my feelings on the value of first round picks in these trades. And I'll, I'll give you guys the background on why I'm bringing this up. Now main reason is, you know, I did a mailbag last week that um, I, where I answered a question and it was on the Broncos and their ability to go get Aaron Rodgers. So I came up with a trade that was, I think it included two first round picks It included uh, both quarterbacks, both Drew Locke and Teddy Bridgewater. It included Bradley Chubb. And yeah, I threw all of this in there and then I sort of vetted it through some guys I trust that have worked on trades in the past. And they said what I had in there wasn't enough. They said you had to keep building up. So what we wound up doing was putting together this trade that and me and like a couple of guys again, a couple of guys I trust kind of workshop this a little bit where we got to the point where we had this trade that basically was the equivalent of four first round picks. Sounds like a lot, right? So it was the Packer. It was the Broncos first rounders in 22, 23, 24. And then both Bradley Chubb and Dalton Reisner, two guys with two years left on their contract. So if you add the years in the contracts together, basically equals one rookie contract, which you could say that's almost like having a current year first round pick. So again, like four first round picks was the rate. And at first I when I looked at it, I was like, God, this does seem like a lot. And then I started to look at and and again, you guys had that that the same reaction. When we put it up on the social media on you know when the the, the SI social people pulled it out and put it up there on Twitter, same sort of reaction, like that's too much. Same sort of reaction when I put it up on my Instagram page. But I, I, part of this for me was kind of going through it and looking at what first-round picks really become. And I think the Jalen Ramsey trade is one was one flashpoint for me. Okay, So Jalen Ramsey was basically the centerpiece of the rebuild of the Rams' defense last year. They become their number one defense in the league. doesn't happen without Jalen Ramsey. So a year later now, we know what those first-round picks have become. It's Calevon Chason and Travis Etienne. Those are the two first-round picks that the Rams – sent to the Jaguars for Jalen Ramsey. Now, Chason had a very average first year. Maybe he becomes a star under Joe Cullen. And bringing that Ravens defense, I think it should really help Caleb on Chason. Like, I think it's a good fit for him. So maybe he breaks out. And maybe it's Travis Etienne. Like I said in the Monday column this week, maybe he becomes Percy Harvin or Curtis Samuel, the NFL version of what those guys were for Urban Meyer at Florida and Ohio State. Even, but even still, the Rams wouldn't reverse that trade today. No way. The Rams f- feel like they won that trade. And at the time, it felt like a lot, two first-round picks. And it felt like giving up two rookie contracts, like rookie first-round contracts was, was, was a lot for Jalen Ramsey. Jalen Ramsey transformed who you were. And those picks like wound up being later in the round because you were a good team and you know like i look at like seattle and, and seattle those picks are in the 20s and for you know like seattle like when they gave up the, the the two first round picks to get jamal adams you look at it and it's like you know for joe douglas to go get Oliveira tucker he had to give up the three that seattle gave him on top of that and his own three to go get a player that could approximate what jamal adams is going to be for seattle and you know he's got the first rounder next year, so we'll see what becomes of that. But I like Seattle probably wouldn't reverse that trade now. Um, so the fact is, like if you got a player that you think is really special, it's probably worth giving up first round picks because it's almost like with these first round picks, like it's like when you drive a car off the lot, like how it loses value. When you look at when you when you look at what the first round picks are. Before they're executed, and that what they are after they're executed. Before they're executed, it's that new car sitting on the lot. After they're executed, it's like trying to resell the car, um, you know, at, at the same value. It doesn't work that way. And so, like again, like I just think it, it, I think we have to kind of change the way that we look at first round picks, and really kind of that crest crystallized when I was considering the Aaron Rodgers thing. You know, and I think if you're the Broncos, you look at your team, you think, you know, we can offer a lot for Aaron Rodgers. We can offer a good situation for Aaron Rodgers. And if we're giving up picks, yeah, I mean, it sucks that we're giving up We're giving up three future ones, but aren't those picks going to be like 28, 29, 30 if Aaron Rodgers is our quarterback? They probably will be. Takeaway number three, I would not read too much into the Brian Hoyer situation in New England. And here's why. I think you can look at it two different ways, okay? If you want to think that this is going to portend that uh, Mac Jones will be the Patriots' quarterback come September, you can make this. You can make that case. You can say, "Well, they really liked what they saw Mac with, with, in Mac Jones at the rookie minicamp. They came out of that. They said maybe Mac Jones is going to be our starting quarterback. If maybe Mac Jones is going to be our starting quarterback, would we keep Cam as the backup? Probably not. So let's go get ourselves some insurance just in case, right? So then." You have Hoyer as the potential backup for Mac Jones if he wins the job. On the flip side, you could say maybe they came out of that rookie mini camp and said Mac's not quite ready. I don't know if we're going to be able to trust him this year. Maybe the year of development would do him some good. We want to give him. We want to at least give ourselves the option of you know putting a real redshirt on him. Well, then Brian Hoyer would help you there too, because then Cam Newton could be your starter. Brian Hoyer could be your backup and Mac Jones could be your game day inactive. So either way, Brian Hoyer gives you flexibility. He gives you the flexibility to start Mac Jones. He gives you the flexibility to put a true redshirt on for Mac Jones. And, you know, if Mac Jones looks like he's close to being ready but Cam's still playing really well and you just want to go with those two, then Brian Hoyer might not be on the team in September. I just think he gives you that level of flexibility uh, and, and, and taking your quarterback room whatever way you want to do it and like a level of experience too where you know having that voice in the room uh, having that resource in the room for mac jones i think is really good too takeaway number four you know i think a lot of the young coaches have done a good job over the last couple of weeks of working with their players and you know there's been a lot of i guess i think overreaction to the offseason program over the last few days um, and whether or not this guy or that guy is going to show up and this week is phase two, next week is phase three. And in phase when, when you get into phase three, now we're talking about real football practices. Um, you know part of the argument that the union made on all of this was that 11 on 11 work in the off-season program had gotten out of control, that there have been too many injuries, too many concussions. I believe there were eight concussions in the off-season program across the league in 2019. So they wanted to find a way to slow all of that down. And so, you know, I think some of the bright young coaches in the league and some of the guys that did this, Sean McVay, Zach Taylor, Nick Sirianni, Brandon Staley. I don't want to leave out some older guys too because Frank Reich did this too. But they worked with their players to say, okay, what do you guys need? What do you guys want? And you know one case, you know, if Reich was the one, they cut the off-season program down. Those guys are going to be breaking for summer after Memorial Day. Good for them. You know, like they felt like they needed the break. It's a team that was in the playoffs, a team that's been together for a few years now. Maybe they didn't need those last three weeks of the off-season program. In other cases, it meant turning eleven on eleven work into walkthrough or jog through. Um, and in those cases, and uh, it's, you know, it's Zach Taylor in Cincinnati, it's Brandon Staley in, in, uh, it, it, with, uh, with the chargers, it's Sean McVay with the Rams cliff Kingsbury with the, uh, with the, with the Cardinals has done something a little different where they've gotten, they've cut their OTA days down to three, but you know, in all cases, it's how do we take care of our players better? How do we make sure that our players feel like we're taking care of them think it's a good relationship building tool i think it's a good way of these coaches showing the players that you know hey like we're we want your impact too it's you putting your bodies on the line out there um, i just think it's a real positive that's come out of what was a really ugly situation and that'll take us to our fifth takeaway which was the ugliest of this ugly situation and that was juan james blowing out his achilles the broncos putting him on nfi the broncos eventually cutting him um, and you know, it's interesting because I talked to JC Treader, the NFLPA president, about this the other day, and you know, his like his point on the whole thing had been over the years, players had just trusted that teams would do the right thing. And that, you know, because the offseason program is only nine weeks and that leaves 20 weeks of the off season where players are, you know, mostly working out on their own and outside of team supervision. Like they have to trust that if I'm putting myself at risk by getting under a squat rack or running gassers or, you know, benching, whatever it is, if I'm putting myself at any sort of physical risk, like my team's got my back. Because if I get hurt there, like they've got the right to take my to to put me on NFI and take my money away and doesn't matter whether or not it's guaranteed in the contract or not, they can really screw me. And I think what the Juwan James situation shows us is the players shouldn't trust anything from the owners that they don't have in writing, period. And I think that's why, to some degree, this is still on the union. Like how this wasn't negotiated, how this hasn't been negotiated, how this has been sort of on the honor system um, for so long baffles me. And it's not even on the current union ownership. This should have been taken care of 20, 30 years ago. And that's what I don't understand about it. Um, and you know, I actually had an agent reach out to me the other day to talk to me about this. You know, you guys may remember Michael Jordan when he was with the bulls, there was this, you know, the folklore was the love of the game clause he had put in his contract. And the idea behind that was supposed to be, well, you know, he loves to play pickup basketball against so-and-so and so-and-so and and show everybody how great he is in the off season. So he wanted to protect himself so he could keep doing that. So he keep playing pickup basketball. And it was a fun story to kind of describe or illustrate how competitive Michael Jordan is. Well, the truth behind that is, like, more than anything, that was just because he wanted to get better in the offseason. He wanted to lift weights. He was one of the first NBA players who, you know, really invested in, like, weight training, right? And he did want to do, like, on-court drills, in the off season and he wanted to use the off season to get ahead of everybody else. And so he had this clause put in his contract to protect himself so he could do those things without putting millions of dollars at risk. And that love of the game clause is now in a lot of NBA contracts and you know, the teams are still protected. So you can't like, if you get hurt like hang gliding or you get hurt skiing or you get hurt snowboarding or you get hurt boating, whatever it is doing something you shouldn't be doing as a pro athlete. Well then the team's off the hook. But if you get hurt weightlifting or you get hurt playing basketball, then that's something different. And I just, you know, with a, in a sport where physical, where, where, you know, like your ability to stay healthy is paramount and is less guaranteed than in any other sport. And in a sport where contracts aren't guaranteed, how, like, somehow over the years, Gene Upshaw, DeMore Smith, whoever, like, how somehow there wasn't a negotiation that took place where this became standard in contracts. Just blows me away. And so, you know, like again, like I, it was in my Monday afternoon column. Like, I think it's something that to me should have been in contracts from the beginning. Doesn't make sense that it's not. And if I'm JC Treader and Demora Smith right now, it's something I'm working to get put into contracts. Like, like today like that's a priority of mine for the rest of 2021 finding a way to protect guys so they can go out and work out in the off season, and so if they do want to treat the off season program as voluntary they do have the protection to feel comfortable doing that we'll get to our special guest right after this All right, and uh, we're going to bring back one of our favorite guests, one of our front office guys who um, has given us great insight in the past and and given everything that's going on, and I think that's going to be simmering over the next two months, I figured he'd be appropriate to, to have on this topic because it's so fascinating to me. He is former Eagles and Browns executive Joe Banner. Um, Joe actually also does great work with the thirty third team. I encourage anybody to check that out. Joe, what's going on? Doing well. How about you doing? I'm doing good and doing good. okay. so I-, I guess we jump right into it here. and um I think it was like a little I want to say it's probably a couple years after you came into the league or a couple years before you came into the league that the franchise tag first went in. And I think you know where I'm going with this, but, my understanding of it was the reason the franchise tag initially went in was because Pat Bowen was concerned with free agency that he might be in a position to lose his quarterback. And so initially this started out as a a mechanism to sort of prevent quarterback movement across the NFL. And I think if you look at the history of the league, um, the NFL has been pretty good at preventing that, right? Like the mm-hmm. league, the teams, the owners, the front offices have been pretty good at preventing any sort of widespread quarterback movement across the NFL, Now, so we got Tom Brady switching teams, which obviously that wasn't somebody forcing their way out, but somebody who had something put in his contract that allowed him to get out. And he's successful his first year, uh, very successful his first year after leaving (laughs) New England. And now it's almost like you have this domino effect. So I want to just sort of take you back to your time in the league and kind of how just teams approach the quarterback position in general and if you think anything has changed over the last couple of years that spurred all of this to happen.
1: Yeah. So I'm listening. Things have changed a lot. Um, and I don't think it's a change that's unique to the quarterback position. I think that the quarterbacks reflect the players increasing understanding of the amount of power and leverage they can have if used. And obviously within that context, no one would have more power or leverage than the quarterbacks. Because it's uh, you know, so hard to be good and it's so crucial to team success. So it's almost a predictable outcome of the players starting to assert themselves more and and realize the power they have if they want to use it. And of course, who's going to have more of that than the star players in the league? So I think that's what we're seeing. And I don't think it's going to go backwards. I think it's going to actually keep heading in this direction. And, and if anything, pick up more momentum as opposed to go back to the uh, what some may think were the good old days.
0: Okay, so, like, the good old days for you, I guess, from a quarterbacking standpoint would be when you had Donovan McNabb in the prime of his career. You draft him second overall. I mean, you look at the other quarterbacks that went high in that draft. You positively got it right. He was the best quarterback in the first round that year, winds up being the quarterback of the Eagles for a dozen years. Um, Did you you guys treat him differently than you? Because it feels like that's sort of part of it, right? Like, is the star Mm -hmm. treatment that quarterbacks get? And the way that they want to be – in the loop for certain things. And I I, I guess you can tie it to sort of the way that the stars have moved around the league and wielded power in the NBA. But I just want to start there with your own experience. And like, if you guys did things to keep Donovan in the loop, if you did things to keep Donovan happy, um, like if there was anything that you really felt like was important, just as far as how you handled the player who was in that position. Yeah.
1: I mean, listen, we, we did, I would say very modestly, especially compared to what I know other teams did in terms of, you know, how they treated star players and quarterbacks. I mean, for example, we were not in the school of including Donovan and talking about moves we were going to make, but we tried to make sure we gave him a heads up before anything major. And, you know, he kind of heard it from the media, the newspaper, whatever it was. And it was just really a matter of respect. Um, You know, he had an idea of what we were thinking, and uh, sometimes we would go to him about maybe um, somebody he had played with previously or somebody that was a free agent. We were thinking of contemplating and asking him, you know, what he thought from playing against him. But in our case, it was very, very mild. I mean, when you get on the practice field traveling, you know, just day to day life. I mean, as you know, we started signing all of our players early when we could. We did that with him. Um, continuity is really important to us, stability. Um, So I would say a little bit, but, you know, not some of the stories you hear about truly star treatment and and really treating people, you know, differently across the roster. We tried to be pretty close to consistent, but with some modest exceptions.
0: Was he accepting to that? Yeah,
1: listen, I mean, he never expressed, you know, you you never know for sure what these guys are thinking or what they think should have been. Uh, but we were lucky and done, and we had a very good player and a very good guy, and he really cared about the team and wanted us to be successful. So um, he seemed to be satisfied with how we approached it in terms of uh, of uh, keeping him in the loop. Listen, he at times felt like we uh, needed to upgrade the wide receiver versus the offensive line, which was something we focused on, and he expressed that. We had absolutely no problem with him, you know, sharing that preference or that opinion, uh, and we considered it. In the end, you know, we felt. especially Andy that you know he had to make the calls that he thought were the best the organization but you know Donovan expressing that preference was something that we we welcomed hearing and had no problem with but then you know went off and made decisions based on factoring that in but not just kind of giving up the authority
0: and I'm assuming like the communication is like it's like I guess it's just a common sense thing right like you don't want him to be caught off guard by anything right like so it's It's just like, I guess it's treating somebody the way that you would want to be. It sounds so simple, but like treating somebody the way you'd want to be treated if you were in that position, right?
1: And that's exactly what it is. I mean, you want to try to, and listen, you want to do this with all players, but nobody's going to tell you and be honest that you don't even work harder at it than the people that are more important to your success. You're even more conscious of, you know, whether it's major information or just communication and, you know, having a good sense of how you think they feel about things and that they're happy um so um it seemed like we found the right balance i'm gonna be curious if he had any different answer but uh we seemed like we had the right balance where we felt like we were in the position to kind of do what we thought was best for the organization at the same time had him feeling like we respected his contributions we knew how valuable he was and you know we were going to give him more information than others but it still wasn't going to be you know maybe all that some would like
0: okay i'll i'm going to before we get like to make the conversation more general i just want to like kind of pick at two things with with that situation with donovan like how would it work with somebody like terrell owens like when you when you and i'm not talking about the way he went out because we all know about that but the way he came in like when you guys were looking at acquiring him if you can give me an example of how all of that worked where you broach it with him and maybe i know you're not seeking for his approval but maybe you're looking for a certain reaction for him like how did all of that work
1: Yes. So, I mean, this is going to sound kind of bizarre, but I don't fully know because our discussion was that Andy had a specific way he wanted to handle that. Mm -hmm. um, And we let him just kind of share with Donovan what he wanted to and not, and then, you know, the timing of it. Now I do remember uh, Andy telling us that he had talked to uh, Donovan and he thought it would be great if we acquired TO. Uh, But beyond that, whatever amount of detail of the frequency of calls, I mean, it may sound crazy, but I don't even really know. It was uh, um, you know, kind of a continuation of the relationship they had, which certainly seemed like a really good relationship. Uh, and Andy just kind of handled what he wanted to share and when he wanted to share.
0: And Andy was probably pretty well versed in it, like having worked with Brett and Green Bay, right? Like, yeah. So like he probably had a pretty good feel for how that relationship should go.
1: Yeah, and listen, Andy had strong views on, uh, you know, the importance of uh, really um, knowing that the players that were crucial to us deserve to be treated with respect and appreciation. And at the same time, there was a chain of command that he was very insistent upon you know, living by, not just in the area we're talking about, but in general, that uh, you know, the idea of discussion and collaboration and keeping each other informed was crucial. But in the end, we had a chain of command and we were gonna honor that and all the decisions we made. Um, and him wanting to handle the conversation we done about something like this was a perfect example of this is, is he wanted to dictate kind of where those lines were and what was shared and we were all fine with that.
0: Okay, I think what's more germane to this conversation is probably the idea that you'd be acquiring another quarterback. Now, you drafted Kevin Cobb with a relatively high pick. I think that pick was in the 30s, like mid-30s, right? Um, mm-hmm. And I think it was the year after that you guys acquired Mike Vick. So, like, how, how are those sorts of things handled? Because like, I, I, that, of course, is, like, I think is a little bit more sensitive, right? Because that's like... Yeah are you drafting my replacement is probably the question that would naturally go through anybody's head. So like, how was that? What do you remember about how those were handled? Yeah.
1: So again, I remember Andy talking to Donovan right before we picked Cobb Mm -hmm. and um, I think it's safe to assume that he was not thrilled by that, but he also wasn't really like, you know, upset by it. We certainly didn't leave it feeling like, Oh God, we got a problem. Now we better sit down with him and, Get him feeling good about things again. Um, you know, we felt like he understood. It wasn't what he would have preferred we do, that's for sure. Um, uh, but, you know, he seemed to realize that, you know, we were keeping him in the loop. And in the end, we had, had to live with whatever our decisions were. But uh, to suggest that he was in favor of that pick would be <laughs> just <laughs> very misleading, at least.
0: <laughs> yeah. And then Vic, <laughs> and Vic was a little different, I mean, listen, right?
1: Yeah. Vic, he did, had no idea. Yeah. And really there were only a couple of people that, that knew. I mean, we knew there was going to be PR challenges. We wanted a chance to kind of make the announcement on our own terms, at our own timing, you know, have set up a plan on who else we needed to talk to and kind of manage the situation, both internally and externally. Um, and of course it didn't go that way, but because that was what we wanted to do, we hadn't shared that with uh, anyone. I still to this day have no idea how, but we were, sitting in the middle of a preseason game, watching the game, and all of a sudden, you know, all of our phones started going crazy and everything, somehow somebody had put out that we were about to sign Michael Vick, and we were like, oh, my God, because we already knew it was going to be challenging, and now we didn't even have a chance to kind of set it up or explain it, and, you know, now Andy's going to have to try to talk about it in a post-preseason game press conference, and, you know, all the best laid plans all of a sudden went up and spoke.
0: <laughs> right. 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 Yeah. So, okay. So like, let's take like a, let's take a, uh, like a 30,000 foot view of this then. Um, and you look at like what Aaron's doing, what Russell Wilson did, what Deshaun Watson did, like how is that challenge different than anything that you dealt with? Like, how do you think the challenge of being a general manager, being a head coach, even being an owner in the climate today, how do you think that's changed? And do you think it makes it so, I mean, like, let's throw it out there. Like, do you think like Andy's got to be concerned about that with Patrick Mahomes? Like, like, and kind of keep an eye on it. You know, I'm not saying that there's anything's gonna happen, but like, if you're the Cowboys with Dak Prescott, like, because this is starting to happen, if you're one of these teams, and let's just say you're one of the teams that doesn't have the problem right now, this is something that you now immediately have to start like just managing. Yeah.
1: yeah any any team that isn't uh, changed by this is really just got their head in the sands. And it's not dramatic. I mean, you, you got, you you should have already been taking your crucial players and, you know, have your hands on their pulse all the time and know what they think and how they feel and treating them with respect. And if they, you know, need something that you accommodate, you should be. And now we should all be taking that to kind of another level all the way through the owner, by the way. I mean, we see in Houston, at least from what appears to be the primary issues that it goes through ownership as opposed to like the head coach or the general manager. So this now has to be an organizational priority. You know, we have to keep we really have to be very aware of what our players are feeling, why they're feeling it, what if anything we can do. So you don't want to get to the point where you're in crisis. I mean there in, I'd call the Green Bay situation a crisis. I'd call Seattle kind of on the edge of a crisis. I'd call Houston a crisis. And once you're in this crisis situation <clears throat> and now you have emotion mixed into it, so everybody's feeling a little differently once emotions mixed into an issue, you know. Settling this down now is is much more difficult than had you anticipated and done what you needed to to avoid getting here.
0: Okay, so like, let's start within the team that isn't in it right now. How do what's the what's the proper way to manage it? Like, is it going? <clears throat> is it like the GM going out to lunch with the quarterback once every month? Is it like? working through the player development people that are or the player engagement people that are with them all the time. Like what's yeah. the appropriate way to handle this if you're a team?
1: Yeah. So my answer is because it's such a crucial thing is it's all of the above. Yeah. I and mean, I definitely want my uh, player development people all over this. And and hopefully they're the ones that if there is anything percolating that we need to know, so we don't get to crisis. Uh, he's got his, you know, his eyes and in, in, in the information that, you know, we need to anticipate it. And everybody in the building just needs to, you know, our we're all here working on our butts off for 12 months, to try to win as many games as we can each year. And this is, this is as crucial as anything to achieving that goal. Put it at that level, you know, measure it, follow it, you know, assign your top people to it. Make sure the owner understands you have a crucial role in this. In fact, there's a chance you have the most crucial role in this, depending upon, you know, the player. And then... You know, my experience is if you get everybody aware and pulling in the same direction, you can avoid most of these kind of problems reaching the point that these situations have.
0: But it sounds like you like think too, like there's a line there, right? Like that there's like the the quarterback shouldn't be like making like personnel yeah. moves, right? Like, yeah. like in that like like so nah. what's like like I, I want to ask you that too. Like, what's the proper level of influence then? Like, if you look at like the star players and and God, we can look to the NBA and like what LeBron's done and like how much influence he has over what the Lakers are doing, for example. And I I can't imagine it ever getting that far in football, but like, where do you think the line is? Like, what do you think is the appropriate like level of influence that a quarterback should have? And and what's the uh, appropriate level of input that the, that the team should be seeking from, from a quarterback.
1: Yeah. So I, you, you've read me properly. I don't think the quarterback (laughs) should suddenly be, I mean, the people that become general managers in the league are people that have trained for these positions for 20 or 30 years and have the experience of making mistakes, getting things right, getting things wrong, studying every piece of information there is to maximize making informed and smart decisions, you know, to suggest that some even 38 year old Aaron Rodgers or a 24 year old Deshaun Watson come in and the equal amount of weight should be put on what they say to the people that have spent all this time learning this craft and learned from their mistakes, you know, we have hall of fame general managers that weren't very good at picking head coaches, for example, right. It (laughs) wasn't what they did best. So to think that some quarterback who really doesn't even know the marketplace that well, or all the coaches or what studies may say about what makes head coaches more likely to be successful than others, they don't have all this information. So I see absolutely nothing wrong in talking to them, getting their input, um, keeping them informed uh, as to what's going on. As long as you can trust that they're going to keep it quiet and confidential. Um, having them feel important in their opinion is considered, but in the end, also make it clear to them, you understand in the end, we have to do what we think is the best short term and long term interest for the team. Um, and we want your input. You know, we want you to be engaged. Uh, we hope you'll feel good about what we do, but the reality is you probably won't. We will probably in every instance won't do exactly what would have been your first choice. Um, and. In my experience with players, and this is changing, so maybe we can't still say this or maybe soon we can still say this. If you treat them with respect like that and bring them kind of inside the information bubble, uh, that they actually really appreciate it. And if you give them a chance to give their opinion, even if you don't always just then do what they uh, had suggested, um, my experience is they're very appreciative of that and and, uh, aren't really generally looking to do more than that.
0: It does look like, like I, you've said this a couple times, though. It does sound like you think, that, like there was some value, like that you that 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 a personnel person, a team builder, could pull out of the player, right? Like so, there's right. stuff that the quarterback could probably tell you about certain players that yeah. might be helpful to you guys. Do like, <clears throat> was there stuff that you really thought, like, God, players are really good at identifying this, or they're really good at identifying that?
1: Yeah, no, there's no doubt. I think that's valuable information. I mean, I I think there are scouts, though. There are other players. There are people in the building. Maybe somebody played with somebody in college. Maybe somebody came from another team and they know somebody. Maybe it's a friend of a friend. Because, you know, the risk in free agency is the things you don't know. Like, why is the team that has this player not re signing him? Sometimes that's a fairly obvious answer. And sometimes you're really perplexed by it. So, all the information you can get in any of those areas is helpful. But the risk here is like, like let's take Houston for a second. Mm-hmm. Asking Deshaun what he thinks in the context that he's one of the people that has some input uh, and has a voice is constructive. If he takes that, though, and then if you don't do what he suggested, it becomes divisive. For me, that's when you cross the line into something that isn't healthy. It isn't in the best interest of the decision-making process of the organization long-term. So you have to have a quarterback that's willing to kind of accept there's a line somewhere and we can discuss where it is that's between us giving your input and then you stepping back and respecting that we're going to have to make these decisions in which we're going to include your opinion. But that doesn't mean we're always going to do what you think we should do.
0: Okay. Um, I do want to go through each one of these individually and then we're going to get to the off-season program. So if you're Green Bay, what do you do now? Cuz yeah. it feels to me like they I like my 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 read on it is Aaron wants what Tom has, right? Like Aaron wants them to build with urgency to mortgage contracts, to do all these things the Packers have never done before mm-hmm. and like build aggressively around him. And they can't do that now because it's the the off season, I mean, free agency's over. The trademark, I mean, maybe Julio, but like, you know, the trademark is really not, you know, it's, it's come and gone. The draft's come and gone. Um, so if you're Green Bay, what do you do right now? Because, I mean, it's not, I, I'm Joe, like the way I look at it, like it's not only Aaron, you've got a roster that's ready to win with a quarterback, if it's not Aaron, and Jordan Love, who's probably not ready to play. So, like, how, if you're Brian Gutekunst and Matt LaFleur, do you handle this right now?
1: Yeah, I mean, listen, it's a huge problem because they let it get so far. It's really hard to walk it back. Um, but I'm trying to, I, I frankly would almost verbatim say what you just said to him. I said, listen, and and I do think they made a bit of a mistake, although I don't think it warrants the reaction they've gotten in that, you know, our view, and I was conservative on the cap. I didn't want to risk like going all in in one year, and then you have two crucial injuries, and all of a sudden you wasted the all-in year. But when you get to the point where you got a quarterback who's going to play, you know, one to four more years, let's say, yeah. And is capable of carrying a huge load in contributing to your success. You should be going all in at that point. You shouldn't be worrying about what's our cap situation going to be in three years. And I say that coming from a very conservative perspective on how to manage the cap. So, but you got to sit down them and say what you said. Listen, you know, we feel like we've made progress. Here's why. You know, we think we got eliminated last year for these reasons, and here's how we've addressed it. We understand you don't think we did enough. So let's talk that through. What else would you want us to do when we will look for opportunities in the remainder of this offseason to do those things, but we may or may not be able to do any of them. And frankly, if outsiders perceive you to be maybe here or not, you're going to make it even harder for us to do any of the things. uh, If there are any opportunities left to get them done. And I would just try to say to them, listen, you know, give us this year, We'll sit down at the end of the season. We'll take your input, and we are going to be, you know, more aggressive going forward because we realize how great you are and how special you are, and that you know our days are numbered together. Um, and to me, and maybe it's clear to them, I don't know exactly what it is that's. I mean, that's a good organization. They've put together a good team. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's not like you know if he wants to be on a team and have a real chance to win the Super Bowl, they've done that. And and frankly, they've had a team that was good enough to be serious competitive for the Super Bowl for a really long time, you know, there were rumors about his relationship with McCarthy. Okay. They changed coaches. Um, It seems from the outside, like he has a better relationship there. It seems like the offense may be designed in a way that's more conducive to success in 2021. So I'm a little perplexed other than, you know, I'm sure he's frustrated that he feels he's played as well as he has. And they haven't gotten further. I get that. Um, But this is not a team that for example, hasn't spent money certainly in the last few years has gotten more aggressive and free agency. Sure. I think has correctly recognized that it's more important to improve the defense, for example, than get one more wide receiver. I mean, I actually believe right. that's the right choice. So obviously in this conversation, they have to address and understand what it is he's upset about. Cause for me on the surface, it's kind of hard to see what he's upset about. He's got a coach. He feels good about He's got an offensive scheme that seems to be more effective. They are building a team and adding to a team that has a real chance to win a super bowl. I mean, if we're just going to isolate it to the number two or three wide receiver, I understand they could be a little stronger there. But there's trade-offs. If you put more resources into the second wide receiver, you probably have left safe left resources to put into a safety or a defensive tackle or whatever it is. So, with Aaron, for me, you got to start with really understanding like what provoked this upsetness. Do you? And then do you do got you think, to try to speak to it. You got to really try Bra- to understand it.
0: Do you think Brady's like like Brady? Not just that he did it. And that the Bucks did it around that it worked. Do you think that's turned the temperature up on, on all of these?
1: Yeah, Absolutely. You know, and I think that uh I think that combined with what we talked about earlier, realizing that Aaron Rodgers probably feels right now that if I make enough of the noise here, I can get out of here. Right. We'll see if he's right or wrong. But watching what happened with Tom, watching some of the other situations again with like a Khalil Mack. He's got to be sitting here feeling like, you know, all the other guys that made a big stink got out. I just think he's got to be careful. The grass is not always greener, and it's going to be hard to find a team that needs him and uh, it, it has as good a chance to win the Super Bowl as, as Green Bay does. I don't know where he thinks that team is. They're either set at quarterback uh, or they're not yeah. as good as Green Bay.
0: <laughs> right.
1: So I don't know what situation he goes to that he thinks is better than.
0: Sure, sure. Okay. Seattle. Cause I think this is interesting comparing and contrasting feels yeah. like they've maybe settled that one down a little bit, but the sense I get is still that maybe Russell's on his last contract there. Yeah. So if you're Seattle, what do you do?
1: Yeah. So for me that this is different. Cause I feel like he has a right to be really frustrated with what's going on. And I would have encouraged him to express that strongly, uh, but privately. Now maybe he did that. And when nothing happened, it became a public issue, but I don't think they've given him the right tools to be successful. I actually think he's carried the team um, even more than some other quarterbacks, some of whom may be better because, I mean, if you ask me, like, what's the key to a quarterback being successful, I would tell you the first thing is the offensive line. Right. The second thing is the, the quality of the scheme and the coaching. I actually, he does need good weapons, but I'd actually put that in third place behind the other two. I don't think, Russell Wilson has got boxes number one and two checked. I mean, they've made him play behind some offensive lines that, you know, were terrible They a right to be upset about and, and worried about, you know, I think they've had an extremely conservative other than the first part of last season, a very, very conservative offensive scheme. You know, you got a quarterback that throws the ball the way he does and moves as well as he does. I mean, a dream come true to a really creative aggressive offensive coordinator. So you know, I think that they, they should have, they did a little bit, but they should be responding to him by saying, you know what, he's making a good point. We need to go out and do a better job of supporting him in the way that he needs to be supported.
0: Okay, so, like, for them, it's just, we're going to do better by you, basically. Like, yeah. that's, that's what you have to say if you're them. Yeah,
1: and then back it up, because, listen, yeah. he's going to be a little skeptical, as he should be. So, you talk is cheap. You know, let me see what you're going to do. Um, but, yeah, I I th- I don't I think Seattle's let Russell down. I don't feel that way about Green Bay. There may be other issues I'm not familiar with, but I don't feel they've let Aaron down. They've provided him with a very, very good team that has given him a chance to be very, very successful. I think Russell's overcome challenges to be as good as, as he is.
0: Okay, let's go to the thorniest one, then. That's Houston. <laughs> yeah. And I, I just, like, I don't want to put you in a bad spot, <laughs> but, I mean, like, there's just, there's, a, like, a lot there, you know, and I know that. Um, I also know that their roster is in a state where it feels like they're starting over completely Um, the way Nick has sort of taken the first steps we see they take a quarterback at the top of the third round I don't that means anything with Watson but I think it does maybe signal a more deliberate build and that they're going to you know do this thing sort of brick by brick and not try to rush it Um if you're Houston, what do you do? Like when you have clarity, once you get some clarity in the situation, I don't, you know, I'm not going to ask you to comment on what's going on legally. Cause I don't think any of us know, but once you get clarity legally, once you get clarity from the league on, on what the league is going to do, if you're Houston, do you look to move him or do you try to repair the relationship? Yeah.
1: So there's nothing that could happen that would get me to be willing to move him.
0: Okay. I mean, to me,
1: everything that comes off of that is negative. I mean, no contract ever matters on the team because now you've traded away the hardest, most important thing to find in football. A top five quarterback, um, hard worker, competitive, liked by his teammates, good leader. We do have these off field questions that have come up now that we got into the middle of this. Um, So there is no choice other than to do in my mind, do everything you can to repair the relationship. Um, I mean, we've spoken about before. I worked with David Cully for a year. This, this is probably one of the best people that could possibly deal with this situation. He's incredibly likable. Uh, he's a very sincere, totally trustworthy guy. You know, if he sat down with Deshaun, it sounds like they have a little bit. Um, it should matter to Deshaun. I mean, this is a really good person. Um, he's going to be transparent with him. He's going to care about what Deshaun thinks. He's going to care about Deshaun as a person as well as a player. I mean, there's a dramatic change from where he's been just in terms of the personality of the coach. I'm not making a bigger evaluation than that. So yeah, I'm sitting down with them from ownership, to general manager to head coach, although I'm leaning on the head coach because I think he's the one, you know, kind of personality wise and newness to the situation with the best chance of building a relationship that gets to you know, comfortable at least coming back, but I I'm waiting him out. I mean, I can't give this up. It's just too valuable. It's too hard to find. It sends a horrible message to the fans, to the rest of the team. It invalidates every contract I have on the roster as far into the future as I can see. It it acquiesces to not being competitive with the better teams in the league for pretty far into the future. I mean, you know, Aikman retires It took Dallas 10 years to find a good quarterback. And, you know, there are other examples of this. So who knows how long before Houston has somebody that can step into those shoes and even be competitive. So... I'm not moving to Sean Watson. If he decides he'd really, really rather retire than play for me, you know, so be it. I just can't risk the message it sends uh, otherwise. So I'm answering a question, obviously, completely mm-hmm. from a management perspective, not not even trying to be balanced, just pretending I'm in the management position in Houston and, and, you know, what I would do.
0: What is it about David then that like makes you say, like, he'd be the key? Like what, like, obviously you know the guy personally, so you can give us insight on him. Like what is it that makes you think like he could be the key to fixing it?
1: So again, a a little bit of guessing, although I think it's informed guessing that he doesn't feel good about the organization and the, uh, and the people and its mission and how they've gone about building the team and some of the moves that they've made. So what they need is somebody that he can really like and trust to talk him through how that happened and why he should feel so good about things being different going forward. That's really the only chance. I mean, if he thinks nothing's gonna change, he's either not gonna come back or he's gonna come back and be in a headspace that really is gonna be bad for everybody. So David Culley has, uh, you know, David Culley is one of these people, the minute you meet, you like, before he even starts speaking. He just has an air of likability about to him, friendliness, honesty, um passion um things that competitive football players really relate to and you don't find in every head coach in the league so and the fact that cully wasn't part of whatever it is it got watson upset so i think he's kind of like fresh air right. so that's why i'm suggesting that he could really be the key there his personality um really fits um dealing with a challenging situation like this where you have to turn around a perception um, and I think he's somebody that Deshaun could could legitimately you know, hold him to what he said and not even worry that he's going to honor his – David's not going to throw out words and make promises. He's not going to honor. It's not who he is, and I think if you sit down with David, you realize that fairly quickly, and that should be very consequential to Deshaun.
0: Okay. We're going to wrap up our conversation on qu- the quarterback part of our conversation with somebody else you worked with, and I want to ask you what this guy did right. Um, And that's Jason Light, who is the general manager of the world champion Buccaneers. (laughs) And like, when you look at the job Jason did, what example do you think is there there that maybe other quarterbacks should heed in handling a quarterback in 2021 and building around a quarterback in 2001? Like, what do you think it is about the way that Jason and Bruce have built that thing over the last couple of years that... A, made it the right place for Tom Brady, but B, might have made it a comfortable place for any star quarterback.
1: Yeah. I mean, you mentioned the key to me. I mean, his his hiring of Bruce Arians, I think, overrides everything else he did in terms of the turnaround and the success. And I do think those coaches, some of whom I know and speak to, played a role even in the personnel decisions that was very uh, helpful and made sure they had players that fit what they wanted to do as well as taking advantage of the players that he already had there. So, You know, we hear about the importance of uh, front offices where the uh, collaboration and the ability to work together well. You know, you hear people talk about how important that is. This is a perfect example of that. I mean, this success came from hiring the right coach, being willing to work collaboratively, make mutual decisions as opposed to anybody whose ego got in the way or some other motivation. Um, Listen, a great example. I mean, I think think Jason uh, would have kept... (coughs) Um, what's his, the quarterback's next slipping my mind right James? now. Yeah. I think if it was up to uh, uh, Jason, he would have kept Jameis. But after seeing how Bruce coached and realizing the possibilities of potential upgrades, you know, they sat down and made a mutual decision, got on the same page, everybody pulling the same direction, and were able to recruit somebody like Tom and then surround him with the players that they brought in in the last year or two. And, you know, they're holding a trophy and everybody else is wishing they were. Um, and not all general managers can do that. I mean, you know, there's, there are coaches that think, you know, leave, leave me alone when it comes to coaching. This is what I do. You stay right. in your lane. And there are general managers that feel the same way about personnel. The fact that they all kind of put their egos aside, were able to, you know, work with each other, talk it through, and actually make the best decisions of the organization that reflected both of their points of view, I think is what created the success they had.
0: And maybe that was perfect for a quarterback, too, because he's going into an environment where it is collaborative and he, is, he does feel like, you know what, like I'm not running the show, but I'm going to have a say. and like, yeah. the, the, these people are going to be willing to listen to me because they're willing to listen to each other.
1: Yeah, and it's the opposite of what we talked about earlier in Green Bay. where I don't want right. to be too critical because I actually think the new GM has done a very good job in the last couple of years and really upgraded the talent on the league. But he hasn't taken the attitude that, listen, I got a quarterback who's only going to be here a couple of more years capable of winning a Super Bowl. I'm not sure how long it's going to take to find the next guy. I'm going to extend myself a little bit and maybe borrow from the future and be really aggressive, you know, in this team for the next couple of years. The, the Buccaneers did the opposite. They were like, we don't know. He may play one year. He may play two years. He may, we don't know. So we're going to try to seize, you know, the moment. And they were all in agreement on doing that, knowing what it means in two or three years. It's going to have a real impact. I mean, you saw Belichick this year explaining the uh, Patriot situation in part because they'd gone all in, knowing they only had Brady for a few years, the last couple of years, and they had to right. pay a little price for that. That's real. That's going to happen to the Buccaneers after this. But if they have, you know, one or two Super Bowl trophies in their offices, they could care less.
0: <laughs> right. Right. That's the thing. Like, that's the way I look at it is, I like, like, if you tell me that I'm going to be competing for a Super Bowl in 21 and 22, and I'm going to have a stripped down roster, and it's going to be a little bit of a mess in 23, sign me up for that. Right? <laughs> right? Like, that's the I can, I can, if I'm the GM or the, like, I can deal with that. Like, it right. means for the next two years, I'm going to have a chance to get back up on that stage. Yeah. Um, in a
1: normal situation, we have a 20 year old quarterback. As I said earlier, I would be worried about doing that because you can lose a game in the playoffs or a, a bad bounce of the ball. And now I was all in. That's different, though, what I'm talking about. You get a quarterback 35, 37, 38 years old. It's crazy to not go all in and see if you can get, you know, one more trophy in the trophy case before you don't have that quarterback anymore.
0: Saints would be another example, too, that people can look at. I think it's a good example of it where they were able to build – and they've still got really good players in their team, but they got to pay the piper a little bit this year for some yeah. of the things that they did the last couple of years. And I think that they would say it was worth it, even though they didn't win a championship, to get Drew a couple more swings at it. Um, we'll get you out of here on this, Joe. Uh, obviously, a lot of news um, this week coming out of every—I I would say every facility—adjusted um, rules for the OTAs and, and mini camp. Uh, You know, the obviously players saying, like, well, I don't want to show up for this. We have what happened to Juwan James in Denver. Um, I want to just ask you, like, what you think the importance of this time of year is. And we've heard this squabbling over the last few weeks. And obviously, I don't think anybody wants to see what happened to Juwan happen, but it happens out in Denver. Um, We've seen, you know, the union advise players to stay away. We saw how that turned out in a couple of cases. Um, We've seen it, like, lead to more favorable rules in some spots. Like, is it that, is this part of the year that important um, in building a team that can be competitive in the fall? And is it worth the fight um, for, for everybody involved?
1: So, first of all, my answer is that this time of the year matters, but it isn't as important as some people are making it out to be. Um, it does matter that players stay, stay in shape year-round, because if the game is just played at such a high level and so fast and if you're trying to get in shape after you weren't in shape, you know, being ready when it's time to go is, is, is you know, it's a risk. Um, I think it matters in, in the, uh, for example, we used to do studies when this was more common before we had the penalties we do now. Players that held out a training camp had a much, much higher rate of injury risk than players that attended training camp. So for me, there's somewhere, nobody has a crystal ball to know exactly where the line is, where a certain amount of work is required to maximize the player's talent and the likelihood that he can stay healthy through the season. So I don't understand how that part's become uh, irrelevant. The players are relying on some, some interpretation of some stats from last year that they think indicated they had less injuries when they had less offseason, and they're kind of treating that as if it's proof. But first of all, one season of anything doesn't prove anything. There's too many aberrations and other explanations. For example, there were no preseason games or less preseason games. Maybe that's why. I mean, we're seeing basketball right now that had an abbreviated off season and they're having a record number of injuries. I mean, we have some of the best players in basketball and some of the best teams in the league that are missing really significant time all across the league. And one could argue that was because they worked out less in the off season. So, um and to me it doesn't it it makes sense for the players to sit down individually with their teams and have a discussion with the coach about listen we have a mutual interest in keeping everybody ready for the season and healthy let's talk together about how to do that best that completely makes sense to me completely reasonable smart approach starting with this kind of letters from every team saying you know we're not showing up on all this kind of provocative stuff on a deal you just negotiated you just voted for he's just about to start. I mean, to me, it's just disingenuous and creates a risk for like what happened with James that just doesn't make any sense. I mean, most coaches I know do not want to alienate players to the point where if you came in and said, can we talk this through, it's in both of our interests to make sure we all stay as healthy as we can through this season. My experience with coaches is they'd be open to having that conversation. They won't always agree but they're not going to be angry that somebody uh, initiated this conversation. So I think the players union should immediately reverse this recommendation. And I think the individual players and leaders on any given team that feel they want to talk to their head coach about changing the rules should feel totally comfortable going in and making the pitch. And hopefully they're getting a a objective, fair ear from the head coach. Once they do that.
0: It's interesting too, because like a lot of the teams, like I know that negotiated with the, coaches this happened in cincinnati um happened in indianapolis happened um with the two la teams at the rams and the chargers where they did that and the coaches agreed okay like the 11 on 11 work maybe that's gotten a little out of control we're going to do that at a walkthrough pace like but Mm -hmm. you're going to do individual drills you're going to do strength and conditioning so we're going to have those parts of the program but the team stuff like, okay, like, that makes sense. Like, we don't want you getting hurt either. So right. we're going to walk through that stuff. Like, yeah. does that sort of solution make sense to you?
1: Yeah, no, that's exactly what I'd advocate. But listen, yeah. if you start with threats, <laughs> it, it doesn't create the right environment for that kind of, I just consider, you know, discussion, compromise. Um, so I don't understand the strategy of coming out so aggressively as opposed to approaching this again, it's a brand new CBA. You would just agree to these terms. That doesn't mean you can't have a discussion about it, but you shouldn't start with a a walkout before you've even, you know, (laughs) attempted having discussions on an individual team basis. And my perception is the same as what you just said. The teams that have done that where the players sit down with the coaches has been accommodations that both sides feel okay about.
0: What would you do if you were the Broncos? Would you have cut him?
1: So my answer to that is a little nuanced. If he was not working out at my facility, because in his mind it was kind of part of this protest, I would be very unsympathetic. And I certainly wouldn't pay him while he was injured. I don't know that I'd cut him in case we want him kind of for year two, but I probably would have been a hard ass about paying him for this year. On the other hand, if I felt like what happened was, you know, he sat out last year, he was really just trying to get in some extra work, be the best player he could be for the team. Uh, I not only wouldn't have cut him, I probably would have tried to figure out some reasonable amount of salary to pay him uh, and not just felt like, I don't owe you a penny and I'm going to take advantage of that moment. So for me, it would depend on what motivated him not working out at the facility at that time, just how, you know, accommodating or hard ass I wanted to be about handling it
0: would you would it have made a difference though if, like you felt like he was just trying to be loyal to his teammates and staying away like if they'd all decided like hey we're all staying away and like yeah. he was just kind of going along with it and then he gets hurt would you've been sympathetic to that
1: well more sympathetic than if he was like a ringleader of the protest but i would have i wouldn't have had kind of as much sympathy as you probably would you know or he would hope <laughs> that i would have Um, You know, somebody's got to be the one. Somebody's pointing in the wrong direction, even if they're a leader, somebody's got to be prepared to stand up and go, wait wait a second. You know, at least say, have we sat down with the head coach yet or the general manager to see if they're open to having some discussions about changing this? You know, until that happens, you know, I want to work out at the facility or, you know, whatever it is. So I don't think it kind of just gives him a uh, clean hands uh, because he was just trying to support his teammates. It does. It is better than if he was kind of the ringleader of the walkout, so to speak. Um, I mean, I do think what they did was very, talking about the Broncos, was very aggressive. Uh, but again, if, if he was a, a strong proponent or leading the, I'm calling it a walkout, um, I wouldn't have been particularly sympathetic. On the other hand, he, you know, he sat out last year and if he just felt like I'm really, I just need extra work to be the best player I can for the team this year. You know, I would try to uh, work with him and, and come up with something we both thought was reasonable.
0: Okay, uh, he is Joe Banner. Do you want to tell him about the thirty third team? It's pretty cool what you guys are doing there. So, I, I when we have Mike on too, we like to let him talk a little bit about it. So, uh, if you want to, you know, give that a little plug, go ahead.
1: Yeah, I mean, I just encourage people to check out him. Mean, it's called Thirty Third Team. We have a newsletter and a, and a website, and we're creating some webinar content using a bunch of former NFL. Uh, GMs and head coaches that I think people would find really fascinating Uh, technically we haven't even officially launched but there's content up there in a newsletter that we send out three times a week um, with with the retired but some of the best names of retired head coaches and general managers uh, participating so I just think if you love football it should be on your list of things that you should be checking out that you find interesting
0: absolutely and i can vouch for it because i've been on there and it's it's great it's when i when i have a chance to get on there i get on there it's fantastic football discussion and can give people real insight into what's going on inside the league Um, he is former browns and eagles executive joe banner joe always appreciate you coming out
1: that's great to be with you thanks for having me
0: All right, thanks to Joe again for coming out. I think it gives you guys a little bit of a different front office perspective that's hard to get anywhere else. So I'd encourage you to check them out on the 33rd team as well. Um, we're going to jump into the six pack. You guys know how that works. Every week I put the call out for questions on Twitter. I pick six. If I pick yours, you get a like and you get an answer here. And if I don't pick yours for the podcast, chances are I might have gotten you on the mailbag. You can check that out on the MMQB.com. First question for this week comes from... Ricker 81 that's at D underscore Ricker 81 most improved team in each division post free agency in the draft good question and I think the tendency here might be to pick the worst team in every division so we'll see how that goes I want to do this organically division by division the AFC East I think really is between the Patriots and Jets the Bills and Dolphins bring back a lot of what they already um, had on their rosters and they both had a little attrition Um, Patriots and Jets mostly added I'm going to go with the Jets here. I, I just like their plan. Um, I like what Joe Douglas has done, and that's not taking anything away from what the Patriots did with their spending in free agency. I just, I look at like starting over a quarterback, and you're getting a little bit cheaper at quarterback. You were able to get some value from Sam Darnold. You put Oliveira Tucker, who I think could be an All Pro level guard within a couple of years, next to Mackay Beckton on that offensive line. Um, you add a player like Elijah Moore at the top of the second round. Michael Carter is going to be a resource. Um, for for Zach Wilson as well, and then on the other side of the ball, giving Salah Robert Sala some juice with you know Carl Lawson the pass rush. I just I think there was a very coherent plan that came together here in the AFC North. You know, I'm not again like this is like going with the worst team in every division. The the top three I think sort of held serve with what their rosters were. And that brings me to the Bengals at the bottom of the division. I like what they did to help Joe Burrow. We can argue till we're blue in the face about Panay Sewell versus Jamar Chase. They got a top shelf receiver in Jamar Chase, a guy who I think for most teams is one of the five or six best receivers to come out of college in the last 10 years. And you're adding Jackson Carmen and Riley Reef to the offensive line. So investing in your young quarterback, I like that you did that. You, know, you look at the AFC South, and again, you have to go with the team that finished last. Um, you know, Tennessee lost some, gained some. The Colts sort of lost some, gained some. The Texans are going into a more serious rebuild now. Jacksonville, look, add Trevor Lawrence. How do you argue with that? Um, Travis Etienne. You know, you look at some of the free agent moves, guys like Shaq Griffin coming in. I, you know, I just I look at where Jacksonville's going. And if you're betting on a team, you know making the biggest leap, I think it almost have to be Jacksonville and the AFC West. I'm going to go with the Chargers. Um, I, I really like what Brandon Staley is building there, and I, you know, I like that they all, like they invested in the offensive line and bringing in Corey Lindsley and drafting Rashawn Slater again. That's a that's an investment in your young quarterback. So give me the Chargers in the AFC West and the NFC East. Um, the Giants, I think, probably stand as the team that did the most, that was the most active. And I think that they're going to get answers on Daniel Jones as a result of all the skill talent they they added in the offseason. You know, guys like, of course, you know, Kenny Galladay and, and, and Kadarius Toney and Kyle Rudolph, um, you know, in the NFC North. Give me the Chicago Bears. Among the teams there, there wasn't a ton of offseason activity, but adding Justin Fields to the mix, I think, helps you get better. Andy Dalton, I think, has got the ability to be better than they were at quarterback last year. Um, and I do think, like, adding an offensive line piece, being aggressive and going, getting Tevin Jenkins, I thought was a was a good solid move. And the NFC South, uh, you know, I again, like, I think you almost have to go with, like, you 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 look at like it's not Atlanta because they had the they had the they're capped out. You look at Carolina. I think that there was some moving parts there and in, in what they did. They they do add some guys um, like a Hassan Redick in free agency. Um, but I like I just look at the work Tampa did in bringing the whole team back and the fact that they're going to hit the ground running after having you know a new quarterback last year and almost a new program that Tom Brady came brought in. So I think the Bucks actually have a chance to maybe you know be like a and that's going to be hard for me to adjust to the seventeen team game thing, but maybe a fourteen and three team this year, which might make them the most improved team in the division. And then in the NFC West, um, I think it's San Francisco, who finished last last year, but just by virtue of bringing all the guys back um, and going and getting your quarterback of the future. And I just think like some of the moves that they made to set themselves up going forward and getting healthier, the natural, you know, guys getting back on the field, I think should really help them in a division where there wasn't a ton of offseason activity. Question number two, this is from Tom Marshall. It's at Red Zonok. What will the Jaguars do with Gardner Minshew? It's a good question, Tom. I'm going to give you two facts that should help chart your course here. Gardner Minshew is due $850,000 in cash this year and counts $897,904 against the Jaguars' salary cap. They don't need to do anything right now. And I think, you know, as you bring Trevor Lawrence along, it's going to be important to have somebody in there who can at least, you know, relate with him as a guy who's going to play early. And I, I just don't think that there's any reason to do anything crazy with Gardner Minshew this year or next year. I think there could come a time where maybe you're able to get some trade value for him if another team has a quarterback injury. injury. So I think there's some value in holding on to him for that reason. And you don't have a lot of depth at the position beyond um, Trevor Lawrence either. And so I think there's value there. So if I'm the Jaguars, I, you know, I probably sit on Gardner Minshew unless somebody's willing to give me maybe a middle-round pick for him. Question number three. We're going to combine two questions here. It's from Sebastian Ray at Destin Ray forty nine. What's your prediction for Jags and Tebow at the end of the day? And uh, then question number three a from Moose Block. That's at Moose Block. Is there any validity to the theory Urban Meyer is trying to get three, te- Tebow three more games so he becomes fully vested for his NFL pension? Um, I to answer your question, Moose. I don't think so. Uh, you know, I, I, could that be Tebow's motivation for wanting to get a, get back in there? Maybe, but he's making a lot of money, you know, at ESPN as a college football game analyst and with his speaking engagements and all of that different stuff. Not a game analyst; he's a studio analyst. But you guys get what I'm saying there. I look, so I don't think that's it. And you know, Sebastian, you're asking for my prediction. I, I still think this is a little unpredictable. I can tell you this, the Jaguars have tanned a lot of people on this, you know, their own players, people in their building. I know there's some people outside the building they've talked to about the Tim Tebow potential signing. I think probably what Urban Meyer is probably, I think what Urban Meyer is probably trying to weigh right now is, is it worth it to do this? Is it worth it to stick my neck out there and bring in a guy who I have a relationship with, who everybody knows I have a relationship with, who's going to bring a lot of media attention with them, in part because we're 90 minutes from Gainesville. Um, and like, uh, it, will it cause my locker room to look at me sideways if he comes in here and it's a mess? Like, you know, could that cost me credibility with my locker room? I think that's a real question. And that's part of the equation as they go forward with the process of deciding whether or not they're going to sign Tim Tebow. And by the time you guys listen to this, maybe the Jags have made a decision to move on. Maybe they've made a decision to sign and we'll see question number four from board NFL fan. That's at board NFL fan. Why would the NFL schedule Titans Texans and Colts Jags for week 18 when the matchup that would create more excitement and would, would obviously be Titans Colts anything more preventing a tank bowl between the Texans and Jags could apply to other divisions as well. I guess there is an example in another division. Actually, in fact, the Patriots and the dolphins play in week 18 and the bills and the jets play in week 18. So uh, you are splitting up the Patriots and bills. You're splitting up the Patriots, the, the, the dolphins and bills. Like I just, I think, you know, as much as anything else, The reason why you maybe would go with a B-level matchup instead of an A-level matchup is the same reason why fantasy championships are held the week before the season ends, because you're worried that somebody is going to be resting players. You're worried that one of those teams is going to go in without a whole lot to play for, and if that's the case and the other team does have something to play for, it could affect Competitively, what the playoffs look like. And so I think that has to be a consideration when you're looking at two teams that maybe you'd expect to be in the playoffs. At least that's my best guess at it. Having talked to these guys in the past question number five from Kentucky Coltis. That's at K Coltist. I'm assuming that's what KY stands for. Do the Colts look like fluffy pillows? No. Then why is everybody sleeping on them? I am not sleeping on the Colts. I think that's a really good team ascending young skill talent, which is an important piece of the puzzle. And guys like Michael Pittman and Jonathan Taylor, I think as good a chance as anybody would have had to resurrect the career of Carson Wentz, still one of the best offensive lines in football, a defense that is big and fast and physical all over the place and a very well-coached group. I'm in on the Colts. If I had to pick right now, I would pick the Colts to win the AFC South. So I'm not sleeping on them. I think if Carson Wentz is what he was a couple of years ago, we could see them in the AFC championship game. I'm not ruling that out. Question number six, final question for the week from Matt Ramos. That's at Matt Ramos. What's the likelihood that Deshaun Watson never plays another down for the Texans? I think it's pretty likely, uh, Matt. And I know, you know, and I'm with Joe, like if I'm the Texans, I probably do whatever I can to try to to keep him in house, to make him happy, to get him back on board, using David Cully and whatever other resources I have to get that done. But it just feels to me like the ship has sailed on this. The tone in the way the Texans talked about Watson really changed um, a couple months ago. And I just feel like the Texans are the plan right now is to undergo a pretty serious rebuild and to lay the foundation to build from the ground up. And I think it's going to be tough to get Deshaun Watson in on that. Like, and that might be the part, the detail here that makes it more difficult to bring him back on board is what he'd be signing up for if he did come back it's beyond just the relationship stuff if you could fix that what is he signing up for and i think there's a pretty extensive rebuild coming there i trust nick casario is the right guy to pull it off because i think he's very very sharp but i just think it's going to take time and i don't know that watson would be in for that appreciate you guys coming out i appreciate you guys having come out for the last five years for the last nine months that we've had the, 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 dedicated feed. And again, like your ideas, what you think we should do going forward. I'm all ears on all that stuff because we've always wanted to make this your show. So one more time, my social media channels at Albert Breer on Twitter at Albert, R Breer on Facebook at Albert underscore Breer. On Instagram. And also, always remember to listen to all the SI podcasts. The MMQB podcast is going to keep going. You can get that. And you can get us for the next couple of weeks in my archives on Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, wherever you guys get your shows. Same time next week. I'll see you guys then.